This is District Sentinel Radio, the newscast of record for the left. I'm Sam Sachs. I am Sam Knight. We're broadcasting out of the Sentinel Fort in Washington, D.C. Check out the website, districtsentinel.com. We've got some third quarter fundraising numbers for the Democratic presidential candidates. And I know I've been uh, feeling a bit downbeat about the Sanders campaign, feeling some negative vibes. But reasons to be hopeful here. Campaign announced $25.3 million raised in the third quarter. That is the largest uh, quarter for a Democratic presidential candidate thus far uh, in 2019. Sanders in total has raised $61.5 million this year from $3.3 million contributions, an average of $19, only 0.1%. Those donors have maxed out at $2,800. I think President Obama, it took him much longer to get 1 million unique contributors. The Bernie Bernie yeah. has reached that milestone pretty quickly. and Yeah, he's doing things that no other candidate has done before. If there is an argument, and I don't necessarily buy this because he's not doing so well in the polls right now, but... If there is an argument that the polls are not capturing all of Bernie's support, you're going to make it here, I think. Yeah, and I think it's pretty clear the polls are uh, misleading, and we saw that in 2016, especially in Michigan. We also have got some fundraising numbers from Pete Buttigieg, who's posting a pretty impressive $19.1 million, although that's $5 million shy of what he raised in quarter two. And altogether, you know, we mentioned how Sanders has received 3.3 million contributions. Well, Buttigieg has only received 580,000 contributions, average of about $40 each, according to the campaign. Uh, Cory Booker raised $6 million, (laughs) measly $6 million. A quarter of that money came in the last few days when he warned supporters he might have to drop out soon. Sad. <laughs> isn't it isn't it amazing though, presidential politics where you're running a doomed campaign, exciting pretty much no one, and yet you can still raise seven digits worth of money? <laughs> I mean, six million dollars is nothing in on like on the presidential politics scale of things. But, but on the podcasting level, it's a lot of money. We could do a lot with that money. <laughs> we could do so much with that fucking money. Yeah, yeah. Uh, still waiting on numbers from Elizabeth Warren, and I'm guessing those numbers will be pretty good. Not uh, on the scale of what Bernie's put together yet, but as far as a third quarter, expecting our numbers to be probably pretty good. Also, curious to see what Biden's numbers are and what the average contribution is over there. Average contribution, $2,000 to Joe Biden. <laughs> Wouldn't surprise me. A story yesterday appeared... I'm going to go close the window because it's kind of loud. Okay. I... I'll just wait for you to get back. Good start. A story appeared yesterday evening in the Huffington Post, which illustrates how terrible the Democratic Party is. <laughs> Surprise to be hearing that news on this show. Slay Queen Nancy Pelosi has endorsed one of the most conservative Democrats in the House, Henry Cuellar. Mm. 
as uh, as the Huffington Post noted, Cuellar is a seven-term Democrat who voted with Trump nearly 70% of the time last Congress, and he has collected thousands from the NRA, National Rifle Association, of course. He's got an A from the NRA. His rating is an A. That's the best rating. He received that in 2018. Just trying to imagine what the Fuhrer would be if Bernie Sanders endorsed not just Cuellar, but anyone with an A from the NRA. But Cuellar, it's not just the NRA. Let's be clear. He voted with Trump the majority of the time in the last Congress. Pelosi made the comments yesterday at the Texas Tribune Annual Festival in Austin. She said, quote, I'm very, very proud of Henry's work in the Congress, and I'm proud to support him, even if I don't have a policy of endorsing incumbents, she said, reportedly drawing some booze from the crowd. (laughs) Just reading the Huffington Post here. Uh, So I was on Jared Holt's podcast last night, Shit Post. Yeah, I saw that. And I was talking about a similar theme about how Pelosi, in pursuing this sort of uh, strategy on impeachment of only focusing on Ukraine and appealing to a sort of like respectable national security minded centrist, a a respectable Republican, uh, that she's just continuing to give cover for the shittiest people and uh, wants to go forward from the Trump era, basically still uh, empowering all these shitty people who have given rise to and, and, and or somehow given support to one of the, one of the darkest moments in, in modern history. Yeah, Pelosi reminds darkest me... Darkest eras, excuse me. It's, it's more than just a moment. It's, it's an entire era here. Pelosi reminds me of the British Empire in World War II, in the sense that you're going up against a great evil in Donald Trump, but you want to also make sure that you can preserve your own evil in colonies all around the world after you defeat Donald Trump. That's a very good analogy. Whereas the insurgent left wing wants to just tear it all down as it should be torn down. So what you're saying is we need a Stalin. (laughs) Yes. It's Tuesday, October 1st, 2019. Here's the news. A new watchdog report slams the Drug Enforcement Administration for not doing enough to combat the opioid abuse epidemic in the nation. In a review released on Tuesday, the Department of Justice Inspector General concluded that the DEA was slow to respond to the crisis, neglected to use available resources to stem the production of opioids, and did not hold entities that were responsible for the opioid boom accountable. Here's a critical line from the report, quote, we found that the rate of opioid overdose deaths in the United States grew on average by 8% per year from 1999 through 2013 and by 71% per year from 2013 through 2017. Yet from 2003 through 2013, DEA was authorizing manufacturers to produce substantially larger amounts of opioids. For example, DEA establishes annual production quotas for drugs. The annual production set for oxycodone was increased over 400% between 2002 and 2013 by the DEA. It wasn't until 2017 
that the DEA moved to reduce the quota by 25% and then by another 9% in 2018. By then, however, 130 people were dying every day from opioid overdoses, and more than 300,000 Americans had already died from overdose, dating back to 2000, when the DEA was keeping production quotas at astronomically high levels. The DEA was also knocked for not doing thorough background checks on new opioid producers to determine if these entities warranted further scrutiny, like if they were merely just pill mills. The Inspector General made nine recommendations to the DEA, including developing a new opioid enforcement strategy with performance metrics, also criminal background checks for all new registrant applications, also implementing electronic prescribing for all opioids, and requiring that all suspicious opioid orders be sent to DEA headquarters. Missing from the report just how much money has been made from these opioid makers, profit they've made from this death and destruction, whether that incentive will ever go away. And the sad thing is, despite how fucked up these companies are, I don't think the solution at this point is to just stop making these pills that people are addicted to, because that addiction doesn't just go away. And we all know withdrawal, not good. Nuclear talks between the United States and North Korea are set to resume this weekend, according to multiple media reports published today. Discussions between the two governments were last held in February in Vietnam. Working-level negotiations have been scheduled for this Saturday after preliminary talks the day before. Talks last broke down after the Trump administration rejected a deal involving sanctions relief for Pyongyang in exchange for relinquishing nuclear capabilities. The Associated Press noted that things changed last month when President Trump fired National Security Advisor John Bolton. The North Koreans praised the decision, hailing Trump for adopting a, quote, new method in discussions. Again, as we've noted before on the show, President Trump has stumbled into the correct position here in search of photo ops and possibly pats on the head. Democrats should refrain, however, from criticizing this initiative and not just because it involves the humiliation of John Bolton. The resumption of talks was warmly welcomed today by South Korean President Moon Jae-in, who has supported the outreach to North Korea since it began. A spokesperson for the leader told South Korean wire service Yonhap, quote, We hope the sides will make practical progress for complete denuclearization of the Korean peninsula and the establishment of lasting peace, end of quote. More signs of a tanking economy. A key manufacturing indicator showed the sector contracting for the second straight month and now at its lowest level since June 2009. You know, anytime an indicator is showing its worst reading since 2009, alarm bells should be going off. According to the Institute for Supply Management, the U.S. Manufacturing Purchasing Managers Index fell to 47.8% in September. The organization regards any number below 50% to be a contraction. New export orders were also shown to their lowest point since March 2009. There's that year again. That's due to slowing global demand for U.S. manufactured goods, likely a response to the administration's recent trade policies. The downbeat manufacturing news buffeted U.S. markets at the time of recording. The Dow is down nearly 300 points. President Trump, of course, is taking note of the manufacturing numbers. He blamed the news on the Fed. Oh, yeah. Tweeting, quote, as I predicted, Jay Powell and the Federal Reserve have allowed the dollar to get so strong, especially relative to all other currencies, that our manufacturers are being negatively affected. Fed rate too high. They are their own worst enemies. They don't have a clue. Pathetic. 
end of quote. These are the uh, brand of Trump tweets I maybe not enjoy most. Maybe that's not the right term, but I hate the least. Yeah. They're definitely funny. I like seeing uh, Jay Powell being his punching bag for whenever. <laughs> just, whenever I'm waiting for his reelection campaign and the economy is in a free fall and he's just constantly talking about Jay Powell <laughs> to the voters. Finally, the number two court in the land issued a ruling today on the Trump administration's moves to relax net neutrality. The D.C. Circuit Court of Appeals found the FCC's order last year mostly passed constitutional muster. The heart of the dispute is whether the FCC can consider broadband internet to be an information service, what current chair Ajit Pai is attempting to do, or if it must be considered a utility as the agency had ruled under President Obama. The latter enables regulators to more easily administer rules, forcing internet service providers to grant equal access to all content online, which is the entire point of net neutrality. Today's decision effectively found that the FCC can do both, consider broadband either an information service or utility, depending on who is controlling the executive branch of the government under the Telecommunications Act. Justices cited the so-called Chevron Doctrine, stemming from a 1984 Supreme Court ruling, which said courts should, quote, defer to an agency's construction of an ambiguous provision in a statute that it administers if that construction is reasonable, end of quote. It's a mouthful. It is uh, from today's D.C. Circuit opinion. The three-judge panel did deal a blow to the administration, however, it also found that the FCC could not preempt state rules which, is, which establish a stricter standard on net neutrality. The ruling said the agency is, quote, failing to ground its sweeping preemption directive, which goes far beyond conflict preemption. That failure is fatal. Failure is fatal. End of quote. Well, there, there were some ellipses in there, but it's, it's hard to find readable quotes from uh, legal opinions. That'll do it for it do be like <laughs> Yeah, that'll do it for the newscast today, but the show is not over. Time for the listener outreach portion of the show where we read some poetry and check out the rant line. All new subscribers on Patreon, patreon.com slash district sentinel get their own haiku written for them and read on the air. It's a good deal to be a subscriber, just five bucks a month. It's the price of like a few tendies a month. And you get all the content we put out throughout the week and you just get that good feeling of knowing your help you're helping support a uh, co-op here in dc taking on all the shit merchants five bucks a month get all the content and you get your own haiku let's read some right now this first one goes out to timothy amy klobuchar the thrower of binders and the killer of ducks thank you timothy or so she says <laughs> this is for t Amy Klobuchar, this year, why don't you support a mean, folksy boar? Thank you, T. This goes to GCU Gray Area. The dog is digging. It doesn't know where, nor I. Dig to China, dog. Thank you, GCU Gray Area. Finally, this is for Kyle. Read the bumper, please. Of course I back Pelosi. Dipshit and I vote. Thank you, Kyle. Thank you to all the new subscribers. 
over at Patreon, patreon.com slash District Sentinel. If you haven't heard your haiku yet, it's coming up on tomorrow's show. All right, last thing to get to the listener rant line. Let's hear it. Hey, Sam. Hey, Sam. Hey, Sentinel listeners. It's later. I wanted to just give a follow-up on the awful Pundit Tournament Patreon announcement that should be launching 10-1. And uh, a question I want to pose you guys came up. Um, who, who among the pundits has the most punchable face? Um, is it Jesse Waters? Is it Ben Shapiro? You know, even going outside the pundit pool, I think Martin Shkreli is up there. Just want you guys to win. Who do you think has the most punchable face in um, in all of the world right now? Who, who do you just really want to sock one to? Um, all right, peace out. Tucker. <laughs> Thanks for the call, Slater. I mean, Ben Shapiro is his voice and his face combined. I think his real punchable combo. I think Tucker, and not just for political reasons, but also for that confused, dumb as dog shit look that he's always giving the camera. Yeah, I mean, dude, Slater stretched it out beyond the pundits and brought in Martin Shkreli. So I'm going to stretch it out. And I saw a clip of this dude over the weekend. I guess it was maybe on one of the Sunday morning talk shows. Stephen Miller. Oh God. Stephen Miller. Oh God. I'm not, I don't know if I want to uh, punch him in the face as much. As, well, I do obviously throw a, like a bottle of piss at his face. I mean, my just my first thought when I see him is his head belongs in a toilet. <laughs> not so much. Not so much the face punching. Although that's that's definitely there. It's just that head's got to go under. Well, uh, the uh, as Slater said, the awful pundit tournament Patreon is live. The uh, stuff's kicking off. I know the regular season of baseball ended. We got playoff baseball starting tonight. It never ends. Work never ends for Slater over there. That is the show. Thank you for listening. Thank you to all the subscribers. We will be back tomorrow. We're here in D.C., so you don't have to be.